Good evening, dear listeners of Once and Future Grinnell. I am so very, very glad that we are together once again in our wonderful space that we've dedicated uh, once a week to discuss strategic planning at Grinnell College. My name is Ann Harris. I have the honor of serving as the president of Grinnell College. And of course, what you just heard was the one song that has been offered up to me by uh, my dear listenership, for a theme song for this show. It is um, the Arthur theme from the early music, from the Academy of Early Music uh, by Henry Purcell. And I I put it before us um, because it's got a lot of pomp and circumstance, uh, but it's a very grand way of introducing our time together. And I'm so very grateful to the listener who suggested it. I'm always looking for theme music for strategic planning. So if you have some in mind, do let me know. I know that that doesn't come necessarily that often. So what I'm gonna spend our time together doing is for about the next 10, 15 minutes, um, I will be doing um, some introduction to strategic planning and some introduction to the issue. And then um, much anticipated at 15 minutes after the hour, I will be joined by some very wonderful guests um, that I really look forward to introducing and to discussing some of the issues before us with. So I wanted to start as ever with a with a, a kind of recap and a reminder of what we're doing here in this hour every week. This is part of a much longer and bigger, of course, set of conversations that we're doing at the college dedicated to strategic planning. We are having town halls with faculty and staff. And in the end, it was determined, and I loved the creativity that went into this, that actually a radio broadcast, which would be saved as a podcast to our website, would be the best way to capture some of the conceptual thinking that we are giving over to, excuse me, to strategic planning. And this is one of the, you know, kind of necessary situations of the pandemic is that instead of leaping into initiative projects and task forces right away, we've really had to give more time conceptually to what it is that we're trying to do in our strategic planning. And so I really appreciate this time to, in our town halls, in this radio broadcast, to really explore the issues before us, to stay conceptual, um, to not necessarily go right into uh, task forces and planning groups. But I will tell you that these conversations have shaped a great deal of my thinking. Um, They have really, really guided to my mind how we're gonna have conversations in the fall that lead to, again, the work that that we're gonna be doing together. So in doing this work, I invite you as I do every week to, um, Send any thoughts or ideas as you have been, and I'm so grateful for that, to president at grinnell.edu. And this is where I've been um, processing and kind of collecting and identifying some of the points that you all have brought forward. So from students, from alumni, uh, from friends of the college, please do respond. And this week, of course, we are dedicating our time to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Over the past month, We've discussed community and educational excellence and continuity. And now we're really at the turning point of these conversations. And it's very intentional that diversity, equity, and inclusion is at the heart of the strategic planning process. It is both everywhere in the strategic planning process and it is 
visualized and and visible this was this, as you'll see in our conversation this evening is very very important to me that diversity equity and inclusion work be visible as well as diffused both at the same time and we're going to talk a lot about structure and policy and those kinds of things um, that are connected to that before we do so i always want to pause and give some time to the title of this uh, radio show the title of this podcast, which is Once and Future Grinnell. And every week when I do this, I seek to connect it to the theme that we're discussing. So I'll do so again this time around. So the title Once and Future Grinnell, in its most literal term, um, of course, looks back and to the future of this incredible institution, 175 years, having moved through various chapters of American history, which have multiple layers of um, experience. And this to me is so important in our strategic planning. I've centered experience through all of it. Um, and once in future Grinnell really seeks to look to the past, think about the present and plan for the future. And doing so through the lens of experience necessitates accountability to history. It necessitates understanding that this college has changed, that this college was created for a particular set, uh, a particular constituency, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word constituency a lot. A particular constituency, namely namely white men, that it has changed and moved and continues to layer experience, and that it must acknowledge that experience and the history of that experience as it plans for the future experiences of its constituents. You'll hear me use the word constituents quite a lot. Not students, faculty, staff, alumni. Although the specificity of all those labors and the specificity of all those experiences is important as well. But the term constituents relates our relationship to this institution to our relationship to this democracy. They are not the same thing, but they are not unrelated. And especially, and I've been very inspired by, by our guests this evening, um, very inspired to think about the simultaneity of being constituents of an institution and caretakers of an institution. This point really, really matters when we think about, again, once and future Grinnell, because in order to be constituents, we need to be informed constituents. We need to know our history, own those parts of our history that we know we need to continue to change because they're systemically deep. And this is the systemic racism of higher education in general, looking closely at what are the habits, what are the practices, what are those unexamined traditions? How do we become knowing participants, knowing constituents of our institution? And then through that knowledge, I would argue, how do we become good caretakers of the institution? When I think of democracy, I think of things like voting. I think of events like legislature, uh, legislation. Excuse me. Um, I think of protest. I think of all the different ways that we take care of the democracy, that we seek to have it live up to the principles that it itself puts forward. And I think of how we are caretakers of an institution like a college. We don't vote, It's not. this is what I mean about not being the same thing, but we certainly do have legislation, um, be those at, at, in the board of trustees or at faculty meetings, we certainly do have governance, we certainly do have protests, we certainly do have deliberation, collaboration, all those other elements. So when we're thinking about being both constituents and caretakers, I think 
that really comes home to me around this title, Once and Future uh, Grinnell. It really comes home to me around the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I hope we can keep that simultaneity in mind as we continue our conversation this evening. Um, the, the, so that was literally, right? Once and future, how we look to the past, how we look to the future. Um, literarily, the title Once and Future Grinnell is actually pulled from a, um, a young, I guess I would call it a young adult book called The Once and Future King. It was written in the 1950s by a gentleman named T.E. White and itself was based on a 15th century manuscript um, entitled La Morte d'Arthur, which was the whole life of King Arthur. So King Arthur is really, really interesting to me um, in terms of, boy, my goodness, a, a, a legendary figure. And then the way that King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table are so often used, especially in American film, as a proto-democratic space. Um, proto-democratic because it's before democracy is institutionalized, but democratic because it's this round table, because the king is not uh, hieratic or despotic necessarily. Now, it is white, it is male, it, it is not the democracy that we strive for today, but it is this very interesting space that gets carved out by King Arthur in, in, the, in, the, in the literary imagination, and I would say the American filmic imagination as well. Of course, with the Crusades now, there's a lot of exploration um, of, of King Arthur and any Knights of the Round Table and a much more global perspective. So what's interesting about the book Once and Future King is that it's the period in King Arthur's life that is dedicated to his education. His education under the tutelage of the wizard Merlin specifically, um, which always allows me to say that the faculty and staff of Grinnell are themselves wizards as we think about their educational roles at the institution. But more specifically, the fact that in this particular legend, King Arthur actually starts out as a very marginalized figure. It's an, he's an orphan, he's deeply impoverished, um, and it's, it's, it's not until he meets this wizard uh, that he realizes his own true potential. And then there's this whole legendary moment when he pulls a sword out of a stone that no one else could pull out of a stone, and he is recognized as a king. There's a lot to unpack there, but what I want to hone in on is this idea of education and knowledge and selfhood. All right, and that allows me to continue that work of underscoring um, experience in strategic planning and an underscoring experience as a kind of expertise at the college. Um, one of the ways that I've heard it said actually by, uh, by several different individuals is, you know, you listen and you believe. You listen and you believe. And this is how you make systemic change and strategic planning, I would say, at the same time. So in my last uh, two, three minutes here of setting forth um, what we're doing and like why do strategic planning, and, and I've had many good questions, uh, people asking about what, what strategic planning even does. It has definitely become a habit in higher education for a new president to come in and kind of chart the course for the next 10 years. Um, and after that, you know, kind of build a structure that can take an institution forward into its future. Doing so, of course, collaboratively, doing so by learning about the institution, learning with and from the institution, and again, charting the course in some increasingly choppy waters of higher education. Um, and of course, small liberal arts colleges being 2% 
of the higher education sector um, is a really important position for us to do this work within. 50% of the higher education sector is um, dedicated to, or rather I would say is, is enriched by community colleges. And then the remainder are the large institutions, um, the you know, schools like the Big Ten, but also research institutions, and of course also regional institutions. So here we sit in this very interesting position, 2% of the higher education market, by far the most costly business model, because all students are taught directly by PhDs and MFAs, um, and because these institutions are highly interconnected amongst each other. The fact that they're mostly in rural settings, not all, but mostly in rural settings, also means that these communities are highly intentional and and really seek to um, you know, the simplest way I can put it is kind of be all things to each other. And that's a certain amount of intensity. It's also a very worthwhile and powerful way to live and learn because you are here in this space um, and you are impacting each other a great deal. Now, there's lots of ways to think about, especially I would say diversity, equity, and inclusion in a broader scope than just the campus footprint. In fact, I think it's very important to do that. Our model for strategic planning is what's called collective impact. We pull it from the world of um, nonprofit. And the idea is that nonprofits operate in coalitions across very different organizations. And you might say, well, why would you do that in one college? It's one college, it's not multiple organizations. But I would argue to you that one college actually holds multiple different models of labor, of um, organization, of communication, of project management. We are in many ways several different organizations within one institution. So this idea of collective impact, of sharing information, sharing understanding, and sharing ambition across faculty, staff, student, um, and alumni, and friends experience across the experiences of multiple identities as well becomes very, very important. So here we sit on this wonderful evening. It is now um, 6.15 and I'm so eager to introduce this evening's guests to you. Um, actually, I'm gonna ask them to introduce themselves because you will get um, some wonderful, here we go, you'll get some wonderful um, descriptions from them. Um, the, we're, like I said, we're on the third principle. We've worked through with community, with educational excellence and continuity, with diversity, equity, and inclusion. In two weeks, we will begin talking about health and well-being, and then we'll finish with financial sustainability. So I'm joined this evening by members of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and I very much hope that this evening we will, in fact, discuss the creation of this office um, and the kinds of changes that structure uh, makes to an institution, but I will turn things over to Mark Reed. You're at the top of my screen, so I'll turn to you um, for you to introduce yourself, and then I'll move through the screen, and then we'll get into our questions. And uh, I'm I'm am so grateful to you all. I know it's the evening, and it's been a very long day. We can talk about all the things that happened today, but Mark, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself. Hi, um, my name is Mark Reed. I am the Associate Chief Diversity Officer for Staff Equity, and I am very pleasured and happy to be here this evening. Wonderful. Vrinda, I see you next. Hi there, uh, Vrinda Varia, she, her, hers. I'm the Assistant Chief Diversity Officer for Intercultural Student Life. And then uh, Mark, I see you as well. 
Hello, uh, everyone. I'm Mark Levandusky. I use he, him, his pronouns. Um, I am professor of chemistry and currently serving as associate dean for faculty development. And then I think we have a call-in uh, member of our team as well. And Autumn, I don't know if you're in a position to speak, but if you are, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself. Hi, hopefully everyone can hear me. Um, I'm currently driving back from my uh, COVID vaccine, so yay. Um, <laughs> but I'm Autumn Wilkie. I'm the Associate Chief Diversity Officer for Accessibility and Disability Resources at the college. Um, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Marvelous. And we will be joined next week by uh, Dr. Shavala Rivera, who is the Chief Diversity Officer, Vice President for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion and Senior Advisor to the President. Um, so I'm going to, so so the, the individuals that we, we are, that you, that we're gathered here um, with are the Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Leadership Team. And what you've heard in the titles are representations from really these three very immediate constituencies at the college from staff, from faculty, and from student affairs as well. And then with Autumn's position being across the entire institution. So Vrinda, I wanted to start with you um, in terms of talking about structure and policy and what you had presented in, in our correspondence leading up to this evening as a strong opportunity to understand and model the humanity between DEI work by building trust with, with structures and, and we can get into policies later, but this gives us a chance a little bit to talk about the structure, to talk about this complex dynamic of diversity, equity, and inclusion work being you know, everywhere and nowhere, right? If it's everywhere, how is it visible and how do we make structure an institutional statement of value about diversity, equity, and inclusion work. How does structure affect the work that, that we're doing? And I love, of course, that you put the humanity to it. I think there's visibility and personhood and all these other things involved. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I think that's um, such a wonderful question, right? I think so much of this work um, really can't happen if there's not trust. Right. And so really, to me, the, the work at, at its core is building trusting relationships, both um, within the individuals that are leading the efforts, but also with the structures that are that are creating homes for the work. Right. Um, and so I've really appreciated how we've been given the opportunity to think about what does it mean for us to institutionalize this work so that it's not just things that exist in these interface relationships right obviously the work is incredibly relational but it also means that everything is contingent on who is here at a given moment right it doesn't mean that institutions are being pushed to um to change to sustain and to um and to reflect right on on how and who is on our campuses at a given moment um, so I think that this tension between, right, how do you build trust? How do you build that humanity while also making sure that our structures allow for that, right, mm -hmm. um, is something that is incredibly important both in developing the work, but also in thinking about the sustainability of the work. I'm, I'm really taken by this idea of structures and trust um, because structures, I think, have a certain solidity to them uh, and relationships do as well, but relationships are carried by people. Whereas structures, you know, kind of kind of exist. And so what does a structure mean in an institution like ours? It means recognizability. I'm gonna say it up front, it means budgets, right? Um, it means decision-making processes. And I'm very excited about the structure that we have in place now because 
the idea for me is that somebody could walk into this institution and and see the structure of diversity rather than have to maybe I don't know fi- find it out or or experience it primarily through relationships. Again, I'm with you. Those are deeply deeply treasured. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? How the structure furthers this goal, um, this wonderful principle you have about the humanity and the and the trust. Like how, because I'm thinking, you know, I I want to support the structure. I want to keep building into it. Um, how the structure does that work of building trust, building uh, the humanity aspect. Yeah, I think it it directs us right, so that mm. we have a balance of identifying where are we building relationships and what are the purposes of these relationships, right? Um, Rather than just saying that I'm going to connect with you because we share this one level of identity, right? There isn't a level of accountability that is built into that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it happens naturally, right? There's something that's really beautiful about being able to share affinity spaces um, with people, but it doesn't mean that those people are then able to carry on the needs or the messaging um, in their role at the institution. So I think a lot of the um, the ways in which trust and humanity come into that is also a measure of accountability, right? There's people to put behind those names um, and those ideas and those needs and those wants um, so that it's not just things that exist as, as floaters, right? There is some some backing there. Yeah, and I think it it makes it establishes a kind of primacy as well. In other words, then the DEI work, as it's often referred to, isn't um, an extra part. It's the it centralizes it in that way, and it makes it recognizable institutionally. And I say all this to you, you know, coming out of a virtual world, um, and really looking forward to being back um, in person, um, but also thinking about how that virtual world pushes us to be very clear to each other in our processes and, and so on and so forth. So um, I have a, a set of questions um, for you, Mark Reed, that work right. Oh, this we have two marks, but one is with a C and one is with a K. So world of difference. Um, so, but but Mark Reed, you had put some some really wonderful questions to me about how we create an environment that consistently, cons- excuse me, consistently yields the desired outcomes. And this gets into the goal setting work and the outcome setting work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, And I would really welcome more of your thinking on on that, whether it's a series of metrics or you know how we talk about goals, because one of one of the early lessons I had, especially with anti-racist work, was this isn't about being nice. This is about change, <laughs> changing structures, holding ourselves accountable to hiring, to curriculum. I mean, some of these deep structures, and and you know, Mark Lewandowski is the faculty representative. We can talk about curriculum and tenure and promotion um, structures and policies as well, but Mark Reed. Could you elaborate on on this this powerful accountability of creating an environment that consistently yields the desired outcomes? I'm very interested in your thinking. Yes, and and so the the premise to or the way that I approach the work is with uh, systems thinking and mm. systems thinking it 
it rejects uh, uh, reductionist uh, thinking. And so um, to look at the difference between systems thinking approach and a reductionist approach, um, a systems thinking looks at the, the whole, the entirety of the system and how it functions and all of the different impacts where reductionist approach takes the individual parts of a, of a system and then looks and examines them um, ind independently of the system. And I'll have to have Mark uh, fact check me um, on this. But if you take um, hydrogen and oxygen, um, it's going independently. You're going to may not be able to identify the emer emerging characteristic, which is wetness or water independently. But when you bring them two together, then you have that wetness that that comes from it. And so that's that systems approach. And I really liken that to our current structure that we are today, um, that we have today that brings us all together that allows us to collaborate from uh, the different perspectives of the constituencies that we serve most and allow us to be able to look at it in a holistic fashion versus in a um, reductionist place, which allows opportunity to not see um, what happened when the two uh, areas intersect together. So can you give me a case study example of this wonderful, this wonderful, um, uh, well, it's, it's, chemical collaboration, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Between these different parts which come to make something. Can you give me an example in your thinking about how how systems thinking, you know, what are what are these points that are coming together where you'd want to see the institution really create something something new in this environment? Absolutely. So um, the way I would look at it is I've, I've talked to you before, it's probably the um, the quadrant matrix or the quadrant model where you have four four major points. Right. And quadrant one, you're looking at uh, managing representation mm -hmm. and quadrant two, you're looking at managing belonging and quadrant three. You're looking at um, managing uh, policies and procedures. And then quadrant four is managing mixtures. And that's the ultimate area that you want to be in as an organization where you have the ability to adapt to whatever um, DE&I um, issue that you um, run into. You can put them in the respective uh, quadrants. And what this does is it allows us to kind of organize um, the challenges that you may face or that you may experience and approach them in, in um, a strategic way. And so the way I would, the way I look at it um, from a perspective is a lot of organizations in the past have utilized an affirmative action approach um, to diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is probably about five steps. We come, we recognize, hey, we are mostly white. We don't have a lot of uh, representation from uh, minoritized identities. So let's go out and recruit these individuals. We then recruit these individuals into the organization, and then we find out that these persons become disengaged. They become, they're not happy with their experience here. They're not able to contribute to the organization. And then step three, individuals become frustrated with them and they're saying, hey, these they're not team players. They're not, this is not what we expected it to be. Step four, individuals then leave the institution. Step five, we're back at uh, step one, realizing we don't have the representation that we want. When you look at it from the quadrant perspective, you, present, you uh, prevent that cyclical approach. You first identify, are we prepared to um, receive, uh, are we prepared to, uh, 
for the next demographics or do we look like what we want to look like in the future right and so we then address those issues or, or, or challenges first and then we uh start to look at now we're ready to be we're more we have a more inclusive environment now we're ready to bring people in that allows them to contribute in the way that they want to and bring their entire selves to work i'm sitting here thinking about how very much rinda's concept of trust must play into this as well right as we move mm -hmm. from representation to belonging to that institutional will for policy change um, and then to you know the the institution, the mixture, the institution moving itself forward. And I, I know the the quad. I see the quadrus as a life cycle as well um, of the institution yes. with with trust in between. And there's something very powerful here in terms of you know. And one of the so I write these essays, and one of the subcategories of this essay was place and a predominantly white institution, the PWI. And so Grinnell is part of a larger group um, called Lacrella, the Liberal Arts Racial Equity uh, Leadership Alliance, which has, uh, which is, uh, a, it's exactly that, small liberal arts colleges. A lot of them like ours, I think there's 62 members now in that organization, connections uh, with um, Dr. Sean Harper and the USC Race and Equity center and um and really thinking about the positionality of a predominantly white institution and what i'm hearing and what you're saying mark is where location and pwi-ness has often been used to say well it's very hard and i i you know it's, it's very hard to get that representation but i really love this this phrase you have of you know dei work is is organizing your challenges and you get them into a kind of systemic way of doing it, which is another reason that I think a visible, um, somewhat centralized structure, and I say somewhat because there are 16 recognizable DEI professionals across the institution, and here we have a leadership team of five, um, that, that I think is that, that the visibility and representation, but then to build from that. And of course, we have three different tracks, three different, is this fair to say, Mark, three different labor markets in terms of, well, maybe I would say two faculty and staff, and then of course students is a different kind of recruiting, yeah. I would say very much um, more, because oh. even within those within those markets, you got uh, a lot of individual profession, uh, professions that bring um, a lot of different unique complexities um, uh, within themselves and challenges. So yeah, uh, we have a lot of them, and all of them um, are, are unique. Right. Yeah. And and I think that's where um, understanding who we are um, is extremely important and how what we do and in, in who we are um, impacts individuals, decisions and desires to want to come here. Oh, that's really interesting. Now, I've, I've just registered a comment uh, from Brenda about a point of debate. And of course, this is the dream, right? Is that there be conversation among the people, among the guests of the show. So I would love to hear to hear your point of debate um, on this, Brenda. I, I mean, I think Mark is, uh, is incredibly right to so bask in that. Mark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I'll say that word. Um, but I, I think it's just a really hard thing to digest um, 
when you want to, when you want things to fit in like clear cut boxes, right? Um, and and I've learned a ton in working with Mark around um, recruitment and the nuance of recruitment um, in, in purely in staff lines, but in faculty, it's a whole other different world, right? And so um, it's it's been really illuminating just learning from Mark as we both learn about what hiring cycles and what hiring needs are across the institution um, and how how nuanced, really truly nuanced it is as we think about even within our constituencies what the needs are. This this is so, so wonderful. And, and Mark Lewandowski, I'm about to turn to you because of course in your work as Associate Dean of Faculty Development um, and with an eye to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you've really, you've hired a lot of term faculty members, for example, into the institution. Um, and thinking about that trajectory into the institution, one of the concepts that we, we are eager to talk about is this idea of an abundance model versus a deficit model of approaching the work of DEI. In other words, not saying, well, um, as we welcome new community members or underrepresented community members, there's, there's support that needs to be there. Yes, there's support that needs to be there. And we would want to have an institution that is positioned to be changed by its new constituents and caretakers. And I always think of curriculum and research and you know very concrete things. But I'm very curious to hear your thinking on, for example, faculty recruiting. And when you bring faculty members into our institutions, what are some of the ways that you think about representation, belonging, policy, you know, this, this quadrant um, that Mark Reed has us thinking about? Thanks for that, Anne. I guess if it's okay, I'm going to take the small preface that uh, this is, I'm completing my 22nd year at Grinnell, oh, and right? it's with some, um, I guess, honor, but also uh, fright that I, I far exceed my term at the college uh, compared to the other folks on the in this, in this show. Um, but I'm very happy to be here to, to try to represent the faculty voice. And um, yeah, I think, you know, in a way, my answer has a lot to do with history, the things that I've seen, changes that mm. um, have happened uh, at the college over the last, well, the time that I've been here, but but in particular, the last five years. Um, I think I could talk a little bit about the Equity Advocates um, Program, but I think, and, and if you want me to, maybe prompt me again to say what is that to explain to the listeners. But um, yeah. but really, the the premise of the that program I think has begun to infuse the way we're thinking about the issue that you've put forward. So hiring faculty, whether that's in the tenure track or in a term position, and now especially through the work that Mark has been doing, that is Mark with a C. I hope you can hear me pronounce that's Mark with a C. So Mark Reed. Um, uh, the work that he's been doing to, to apply these same principles uh, to hiring of staff, so other employees at the college. Um, it, it's being mindful of that, that, that concept that you've identified, an abundance. People come with training that is on their CV, that these are, these are things that we can read about, but they also come with a wealth of experience. Maybe they embody diversity, in a variety of ways. Maybe they have had diverse experiences, whether that is in the curriculum itself or in other aspects that would be important for leading the college and being a part of this community or things that we just may not know yet. 
And so I think that um, if we, as the groups that are involved in hiring, can, can be aware of that in the first place, but then also bring that to the discussion, right? What are the things that we are not seeing in a person's CV when we talk with them in an interview? How do we pull those kinds of things out? How do we learn those things about them in order to uh, most appreciate the richness of what they can bring if we hire them in, in the particular position? Yes, and, and dear listeners, this of course is the limit of radio is that you can't see the screen where, where this comment is being applauded that, that Mark just made. Um, and I am thinking uh, a great deal about um, a concept that uh, Ibram Kendi puts forward in uh, how to be an anti-racist, which is the, the really big distinction between being anti-racist and being assimilationist. And I sometimes worry about higher education being a highly assimilationist. I sometimes worry. I worry about this a lot. Uh, higher education being an assimilationist culture that one comes in and one becomes recognizably a professor, recognizably a student, recognizably a staff member, um, and really trying to break that. And I think the, the places, of course, where we see the, the changes are in the curriculum. They are in what is considered expertise. They are in what is considered scholarship. I mean, these are all these things that I, I, I try to look at, you know, systemic and assimilationist are closely connected in my thinking. Um, and I think about the impact of assimilationist culture on faculty, staff, and students to come and, and, and recognize oneself um, as a student. Now, part of the, the joy that's been presented to me about being Grinnellian is this less assimilationist or uh, you know more expansiveness in order to for an identity to thrive but I think we have to remain very self-critical and try to look at the systems we have in place that are assimilationist systems um, and so this is where this is where changes in curriculum changes in how we understand research certainly from the faculty experience really make sense and I, I would invite um, and 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 Autumn, if um, you're in a position to, to speak here, I would invite your thoughts and everyone on where you see that assimilationist, excuse me, assimilationist pressure um, being exercised and what systems you would want to change to kind of move that um, in your work. Yeah, um, hopefully everyone, uh, we're still driving, so hopefully everyone, I don't lose <laughs> service or things like that. Um, you know, the joys of uh, rural Iowa. Um, but uh, I, I think I've been thinking a lot about the things that my colleagues have been saying in terms of this and your question around where where we ask people to assimilate or, or where that sort of built into structures. And I, I think one of the things that I think relates, but it's, it's a slight tangent, um, is really thinking even around going back to your first question about structures and, and what messages structures send implicitly or explicitly about things. And I'm thinking about this particularly around disability as an identity. And, and so rarely is disability, I think, really intentionally incorporated in very structured ways into conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think a lot of times, and, and this gets to that assimilationist part, we really think about or we conceptualize these things that are a really core part of someone's experience or their identity. We think about them from the legal, from the compliance, from all of these structures that really limit the ways that we not only expect or anticipate people, but really limit the way that people can show up as themselves in spaces. 
Um, and I think this is something that I've seen definitely around the experiences of faculty, staff, students with disabilities. I think ableism is something that's pretty heavily embedded, um, like other systems of oppression, in our systems of higher education and, and certainly push people to, um, rather than really being able to show up as, as folks were talking about as them, their whole self, find ways to try to assimilate into what they expect, you know, um, or what they think they are expected to be within a particular space, whether that's as a faculty member, as a student, as a, a staff member. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and of course, that's a, that's a, you had a beautiful phrase about, about the structures limiting um, identities and, and being oneself, in fact. And so my question, uh, and maybe Vrinda, we, we would start with you. My question then becomes, what would, what would you want to change in your work, in how you do your work, um, when it comes to the fulfillment of that work, um, and when it comes to, to, in other words, would you want to be changing a structure, a policy? Um, I'm, maybe the answer is all of those things. But as we dream into the future of DEI work as well and plan into that future is really the better word. Um, how would your work change? What would be different about your work if, and this is back to, to quoting Mark Reed, we do succeed in creating an environment that consistently yields the desired outcomes. How does your work change, Rinda, in that sense? You know, I think um, we've talked a lot about how DEI work is often response-oriented rather than mm. preventative, right? And so I think that a lot of the work would change by thinking about these these what could come, right? Um, thinking about how do we move this in a way that is both about centering self, about I, I being empowered in self, right? And as Autumn's talking about, right, rather than creating a culture of um, acknowledging and addressing need, right? It's about creating a culture of anticipating need and and a, a community of belonging, right? So, um, I, you know, and to get to your question, I think a lot of how um, the work would change is that it would be far less reactionary and far more growth-based. Um, and I think that that does involve both policy change, structural change, um, you know, how we're even interacting as with students, for students, um, for students that, for others that are engaging with students. Um, I, I think it really is a 360 kind of evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, right, there is um, levels of response and crisis response that will always be part of the work of an institution of, of higher education, right? We, we address what is happening immediately in the world, just like we did today, yes. right? Um, but being able to do that with um, agility and preparedness rather than in in crisis operations is a really different way of thinking about how we um, how we address the needs of our community. And that that's what so so to provide the reference because many listeners listen to the podcast later than April twenty first, twenty twenty one. But this is to address the the really powerful session um, that that uh, Vrinda, you and 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 others of the leadership team of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion hosted today really for a lot of people came um, and this was a a session dedicated to processing racial fatigue in dialogue um, and there were breakout groups and there was a, a central moment and mark reed you very powerfully set 
the the framework within a historical framework um, so that even though we, there was certainly great focus on the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd, um, there was also a much more expansive picture. I believe you began with a quote from 1866 from the president, um, Andrew Jackson at the time. Did I get that right? What's that? Johnson. It was Johnson. That's why I was thinking, wait a minute, that, those dates, I, my apologies. I remember the date 1866 because that, that was a marker. You began with a quote and then you brought us back to 1866 and, and moving forward and looking at systems of wealth transfer, looking at systems of housing, uh, looking at financial systems and really, I mean, deep, deep systems um, in American society. And so thinking about that moment that was held today and and which really in one short hour moved from that historical perspective into one of healing and self-care um towards the end of the hour i think was was really powerful um it was something that was done the way that it was established it was established last week was yes we were all thinking about this verdict but in that moment, what I saw was not just a, how are we going to deal with the verdict? It was a bigger question of processing racial fatigue. And I think getting us to those, to those big questions so that we can take on a verdict like the one that was announced yesterday um, feels like a, a, a very, um, there's many adjectives that are in my head, but it feels like this, this dynamic that we that certainly I felt I felt more interconnected to the issues that we're trying to address. And I could think about our work and I could think about this present moment all at the same time. Um, so, Mark, can I add on to that please, really quickly? Please, oh, by all means. I, um, I, write, I, I often think that these conversations um, tie back to dialogue around grit and resiliency. Right. And um, I, you know, I think that they are embedded in some ways, but I also think that we fall to the ideas of leaning on grit or leaning on resiliency all too often. Right. And um, I, I just I, I hope that we can grow into an institution. Right. That does not ask our students or our faculty or our staff who are marginalized because of whatever identity to have to lean on their forms of resiliency in order to navigate this, this institution mm-hmm. um, and to navigate their work, right? Yeah. Um, I think that happens all too often in the world, right? And so rather than saying, how do we how do we ask you to default to that? It's how do we, how do we help you call that forward with intentionality, right? Um, in, in these moments of stress and crisis. Yes. And, and and I this is another moment where creating a particular kind of time and space then doesn't default to you know oh um, yeah pluck or grit or resiliency I remember learning a great deal from um, Tamara Bobuff's book she's a faculty member in gender women and sexuality studies of uh, the myth of the strong black woman and she really did a sociological analysis of the medical impact of that particular myth and so I'm just thinking about that long-term impact and some of my conversations with young alumni as well um, that it's not just the four years here right it, it's it's what continues um, I'd like to turn the question to to you, Mark Reed, in terms of how would your work change if we create an environment that consistently yields the desired outcomes? How would your work change? What would be different? Hmm. And so really um, borrowing instead of stealing from uh, my brilliant colleague, Brenda, (laughs) 
um, I really, I really appreciated the the proactiveness of it, mm-hmm. and and moving from uh, a reaction, a reactionary uh, state, and really looking at, and like I said earlier, looking and analyzing at who are we today, and who do we want to be? Who is not here that we desire to be here, and how do we get them here? And those with, and and what's stopping or preventing them from being here? right now and and really addressing those those challenging questions what obstacles are in the way and i think the answers to those are going we're going to get a a a great deal of answers that will have us looking at looking at us holistically that will allow us to just become better in that state and really addressing and, and challenging those things there's there's things that and and ways that we operate that have been um, in place for a much different um, workforce design and workforce model. And the way we look today is the way the workforce looks today is completely different. And mm-hmm. it isn't, it doesn't, it doesn't meet the needs of those individuals. So I think if we begin to ask those questions, we put ourselves at an advantage, advantageous place as we enter into those marketplaces. If we continue and remain in the reactionary space or reactionary place, we're constantly putting band-aids on things, constantly treating the symptoms and never um, treating the actual root cause or the disease. So one of of the things that I keep thinking about is this, um, this, these two different points, I guess I would say, between blindness and color blindness and and doing away with that and seeing identity instead of being blind to identity, seeing identity without essentializing to identity. So there's a whole spectrum here, right? And I think we've moved very far from, I mean, this is, this is the... The, the really there is a, a spectrum that is also a progression of I don't see color, which is really not at all how we're functioning um, in terms of our interrelationships with each other to, you know, essentializing to an identity like, oh, it's a woman, then therefore, you know, then I'm going to think a particular way. But I think about that interpersonal spectrum where we're really trying to honor identity and learn um, and this is why I thought it was so powerful that you you started everything today, Mark, with history, right? To learn the history, to know the Federal Housing Act, to know all the different institutions and systems that are in place so that the, the problem, the barriers are recognized so they can be addressed so that there's not that time of wondering. But then I think about so many of our um, laws and so many of our employment regulations being blind to identity, with the exception of anti-discrimination work as well. So I just keep thinking about that when I think about recruiting faculty, recruiting students. We recruit faculty members, we recruit students. What does it mean to recruit black faculty members? What does it mean to recruit black students? Is there something that is responsive to identity without essentializing to identity? And I I ask that as as an open question because I think there's a lot of different answers right now. (laughs) <laughs> I, if I, I could, oh, oh go ahead Mark, and then I'll chime in no I'll, I interrupted you you go first okay um well and I, I think this like this piece around like the legal components and, and even thinking about 
anti-discrimination law. Like, you know, I think a lot of the ways, like the ADA is set up as an anti-discrimination and access law. And yet I also think about or challenge this idea that those don't also limit the work that we do. Um, I think there's lots of ways where even in the ways that our protections have been legalized, they still privilege the institution or the folks that are doing the the hiring, the taking, like, I think there's all sorts of ways where the legal system, even in the places where it builds protection, is not set up to support marginalized identity. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I, one of my pieces of homework is to better understand the Iowa Civil Rights Act, which I think was at one time one of the more progressive civil rights acts of the, of the, um, of the country, and I, you know, there there are different things happening in the legislature now. But um, Mark, I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I cannot believe our time is ending. But this is what happens. So, um, Mark, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. So, okay. So there, first of all, there, there are exceptions to, um, kind of identity based hiring. You know, you have the, um, bonafide qualification exception, which allows for you to hire or, or essentially discriminate on, um, those protected identities based on the qualifications for a position. So if a position has specific qualifications that are pertinent to an identity, you are able to hire, um, that specific identity, for example, like a rabbi position uh, that we have uh, right now, right? Now, outside of that, I personally think one of the worst things that you could do is hire someone truly just strictly based on their identity, right? Um, I think the way you approach, um, I guess, you're looking to increase representation and um, from uh, varying identity groups is you look into robust candidate pools. You look at robust areas where you have a concentration of a specific identity there mm-hmm. that meet the qualifications of the position. Everybody from every identity group want to be hired based off of the merit of their um, experiences, their skill set, and not based off of what their identity is, especially if it has no bearing on the specific role. And so the way the way I would approach it is I would be looking. So, for example, you you said specifically um, African-American. I would be looking at HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I build in uh, a relationship with that? We see that they're uh, most they're producing twice as many lawyers and doctors than PWI African American lawyers and doctors than PWIs, and the outcomes are very different. So um, for African Americans, and so you have a, a specific. I would look at cities uh, like Atlanta, where you have um, large concentrations of. Uh, of, of black individuals that may meet the criteria or experiences that may be looking for at um, this type of uh, institution. And so then from that perspective, if that, if that identity doesn't, isn't necessarily existent in our local markets or in the markets that we have reached to, I think we also have a responsibility to develop a grassroots approach, right? Mm-hmm. And um, create programming that is going to increase the representation, for example, in the STEM field of, of African Americans. We have a duty and responsibility to, to build that. And the question is that we need to ask ourselves is, why do I want increased representation of these minoritized identity groups. We have to begin to understand the power, the superpower that goes into diversity Mm -hmm. and evolve our 
our business case model from a social responsibility to a business imperative. And what that, what I'm saying by that is, is that there's a lot of data out there that demonstrates that heterogeneous teams outperform homogenous teams. So I'm not, I'm not hiring you just because we have low representation in, and this group has been oppressed, but I'm bringing you on because I know that you're going to bring a diverse perspective that's going to bring us, that's going to push us to the next level. That's going to advance us strategically and, and, and help us achieve our mission. And so when we get to that understanding why we're bringing on those specific um, identity groups, we then become vested in grassroots development. And, and we become vested in building and establishing those relationships within those um, those communities. Oh, that's And that's the abundance model at work. I mean, that really is the abundance model at work. I, I, I just couldn't applaud and agree more. Um, because those the problem solving on diverse teams i mean this is how this is and and i think there's a lot of evidence as you were indicating um in scientific disciplines in labs and in all sorts of different business and entrepreneurial settings as well and i think higher education saying you know the, the changes in colleagues and colleagues and a sense of belonging that's going to create that change in the curriculum that has us moving forward, you know, in, into our future. And I want to quote from a, um, a, a note that Vrinda has has uh, brought forward here. How do we center and celebrate identity, but not essentialize it or essentialize to it? And I, again, that I think is when we talk about cultural competence, when we talk about the kind of skills that we're trying to gain in the work um, of doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work, being able to see those complexities and to operate within them and to, to do that simultaneity of honoring the work and changing in the institution and changing the institution. I mean, I get very excited when I see this happening in the curriculum, I, when I see it happening in our practices, um, in our policies. And, and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about policy because that's the accountability of the institution. Um, and I, I keep, now I'm gonna go full circle, Vrinda, to, you know, where do we find trust in the institution? Where does that happen? And I think for someone to walk into a room um, and to say, I'm gonna be valued for the expertise that I bring, for the experiences that I have, I'm gonna be heard, um, and I'm gonna have an impact. I mean, and again, how, how we keep creating that environment. So I look to those spaces and there's one space we haven't talked about and we won't have time, um, but it, it's, in the, it's in the residential experience. Um, in the student residential experience, in where we live in our town, in our towns, um, along the I-80 corridor sometimes, or up and up and down from it. Um, and that, I guess, is to be continued, but our sense of home uh, to our work as well. So I always end up ending Ooh. the show somewhat rapidly because we go right up to the top of the hour. But um, Mark Reed, Mark Lewandowski, Vrindavaria, Autumn Wilkie, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and the top of my mind. Um, I've taken tons of notes. I'm so grateful to you. I can't wait to see you around the next work table um, that we will all hold together. So thank you, dear listeners, and we'll see you next week on Once in Future Grinnell. Be well. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you, Anne. Oh, my goodness. Take good thank care. You. See you next time. Bye. And so, dear listeners, again, I thank you so much in these last 30 seconds. Um, you see how very fortunate 
Grinnell Colleges and the expertise of uh, these wonderful, wonderful colleagues. Uh, next week, we will continue this conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We will delve maybe deeper a little bit into this sense of place, um, into this um, idea of how we change our policies, our structures, and our work to keep creating the society we want to be um, and the society we want to see in our American democracy. Take good care. Until next week.